I have a problem. I live down in the Sinai Desert. I'm a Midianite. Being a Midianite, being a Bedouin, my family has always lived in tents all of their lives. It's been a simple lifestyle. We've enjoyed living off the land. We've enjoyed one another. Being a Midianite, I'm a child of Abraham by dissension. But lately, in my region, there's been another group of people, also descendants of Abraham. In fact, a whole bunch of them. About two and a half million of them. They've been coming in droves. They've been coming for weeks. And right now, they're encamped right in the area that I live at the foot of Mount Sinai. What makes this people different from my people is not only are they large in number, but they center their entire life, even the encampment of the nation, around this odd tent. There's a fence around it, a courtyard in it. It's all made out of cloth. All these strange colors, skins, badger skins. And you can see it wherever you are because there's this cloud during the day, this pillar of cloud that ascends up into heaven. I've never seen anything like it. And at night, there's this pillar of fire. Whenever they move, those things move and they follow that cloud or that pillar of fire. Now, my problem is this. As I watch them and they center their lives around the worship of their God, my heart yearns. I want to know God. I would love to have fellowship, intimacy with this God that they speak of. I'm attracted to their style, their lifestyle, their simplicity, but their fervor and their love for this God. What do I do, though, to get close to Him? How can I approach Him? How can I feel what they feel? If you lived at the time that we're reading about, time of Leviticus, about 1450 B.C., and I was having that conversation with you, the only answer you could give me would be that I would have to become one of them. You'd say to me, okay, you have to go and be circumcised. You have to keep their law. And the only way you can approach their God is through animal sacrifice. You have to get an innocent animal to die for you, and the blood will be shed. And as that blood is shed, your sins will be atoned for, and you'll be right with God. The only way. Oh, what if I don't like that? My concept of God is different. I'm just going to go on the mountain and eat granola and, and contemplate nature, get close to nature. And the correct answer, if you were giving it to me, you'd say, well, you can do that all you want, but you won't know the true and the living God unless you come His way. And that is true. This was the prescribed way for people to know God, the system that he established. By the way, Judaism was the only religion God ever gave to man. Christianity is not a religion. The fulfillment of all of that religious ritual is found in Christ alone. It's a person that we worship. It's a relationship with a living person rather than the regulations of a law. But Jesus himself, to the Samaritan woman, when she said, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, we worship in Samaria, which is the right place. Jesus said, 
We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. That was the prescribed way. God in his love made a covenant with the nation of Israel, brought them out of bondage. The Passover is over. They've made it through the Red Sea. They're in the Sinai Desert. They're camped before Mount Sinai. Now God establishes his covenant of approach by a series of sacrifices. The first sacrifice last week, we remember, was the burnt offering. Purely voluntary. The burnt offering. The animal was skinned. The skin was given to the priests. The animal was then totally burned, consumed by fire which spoke of consecration, absolute consecration and devotion of my life to God. Again, it was voluntary. You didn't have to do it. But what a statement that made. Take this animal, burn it up, man. All of it. As a symbol of my life being totally consumed unto God. I want to live totally for Him. Have you ever come to that place in your life? Where you're just tired of playing around with God. Tired of playing church. Tired of relegating God to one morning per week. You just want God and all of His fullness, and you want Him to take every aspect of your life. Then there was the meal offering, or the grain offering. You would take flour, you'd grind it up, or you'd take fresh green heads of grain. There was different ways you could prepare it, depending on what you had available. Also voluntary. It was a work of your hands. It was not compulsory. It was voluntary. But it was something that you would make, you would do, you would work on, and then you would offer the work of your hands unto God. I see that as speaking of our service to God. What a privilege it is to work for God. He's a great boss. The wages of sin is death. Satan was a horrible boss. His wages were death. God is a free gift of eternal life. The other day I was asked to come to this governor's employment opportunities thing that they have for the state government. They were giving out awards. They were talking about the people that worked for them and with them and how much they appreciated them. And I love my boss. And they are introducing their bosses and their supervisors. And the very end of this thing, I was asked to give a benediction of prayer, which is great. It was an opportunity just to share the Lord in that environment. And so I got up to the microphone. I said, you've been speaking about your bosses. Now I'd like to address and talk to my boss. The service, the work of our hands that we offer to the Lord is completely voluntary. Yet, God has given each of you a place in his body. God has given you gifts, the work of your hands, some talent, and some spiritual gift that goes along with the talents that he has given you for you to offer to him. Then there was the peace offering that was given in chapter 3. We spoke about that last week and we ended with it. Now in chapter 4, we're at the sin offering. Now, you might ask, why is the sin offering given fourth? You'd think it'd be given first, right? You take care of sin first. No, actually the sin has already been taken care of at the Passover. The lamb has been slain. Their sins have been covered. 
They've marched through the wilderness. They are now God's covenant people. And there is an order for God's people. These are, th these are not offerings for unbelievers. These are for God's covenant people. You come to know him into a relationship by faith. The blood of the Passover lamb covers your sins. The next area is the area of absolute consecration to God. I remember this very definitely in my life. After I was saved, God still kept poking around at my heart, saying, I'm not done with you. I still want that area. I still want you to repent of this sin or be devoted to me in that area. And I remember reading a little good news for modern man one evening, paraphrase translation. I liked it because it had stickmen pictures in it. I actually looked at the pictures and got blessed. The translation of one of the Beatitudes was something that I'll never forget. It said, Blessed are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. And I kept reading that over and over. And then I had to ask myself that all-important question. Is my greatest desire to do what God requires? And I had to admit, Lord, up to this point it hasn't. Oh, I've, been, I've enjoyed my relationship with you. And I like this little Bible that I have. And I like my Christian friends. But I can't honestly say that my life has been totally consumed with you. But I want it to be. And I'm willing to become willing to let you do your work in my life. That my greatest desire would to be what you would require. And I remember God speaking to my heart about different issues very, very plainly, very clearly. Just, it came in thoughts to my mind of what I was to do. And I knew the Spirit of God was just poking around. And so the first offering, we come to Christ, but the Passover lamb washes our sins. There's consecration that we deal with first. There is the service as depicted by the meal offering. There is the peace offering, which speaks of fellowship and intimacy with God as well as with others in the body. And then a sin offering. Why? Because even after we are Christians, there still is that constant need for cleansing. We all fail. We all blow it. And we need to confess our sins to God. It's part of my daily prayer to ask God to confess my sins. And you know what? The longer I walk with Christ, the more aware of my fleshly, human, sinful condition. You know, at first, I thought the Christian life, as you walk it, you just get so holy that you marvel at your own holiness. Maybe you even kind of just glide instead of walk. I had all these misconcepts, wrong concepts of the Christian life. But I've discovered the more mature a person becomes, the humbler that person becomes. He didn't see himself as some great person. He wonders, How, God, why do you still use me? As I mentioned when I was in Atlanta with Dr. Billy Graham a few weeks ago, every night of the crusade he talked about sin and he said, Billy Graham deserves hell. Billy Graham deserves judgment. He deserves death. But by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, he's forgiven. You think, Billy Graham deserves that? When David Frost was interviewing Billy Graham, some of you may have seen it when they did that special on television. And when Billy said that, he said, I don't deserve heaven. David Frost said, excuse me? 
If you don't deserve heaven and you say you deserve judgment and hell, where does that leave the rest of us? He didn't understand the grace, the propitiation through Jesus Christ. So we still need that constant cleansing. And we see that in the sin offering. It comes forth. That's the logical place. We consecrate. We serve. But we still need, after even fellowship, to bring our lives before him and ask for cleansing. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That is the veil that would separate the holy place from where the tabernacle was, the holy of holies. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar. Do you remember when we were going through Exodus and we brought out what we made, the articles of the inner sanctuary, we have them stored and we bring them out from time to time to show you the dimensions. There was that little altar, square, not very big on top. It was sort of tall and narrow and it had four protrusions on the four corners. Those were the horns of the altar. And blood was to be put on those. The altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now this is different from the other offerings. This is not voluntary because everybody sins. Sometimes we sin intentionally. Sometimes, as this text says, we do it unintentionally. But we all sin. This is not something you can say, well, I may or I may not. If you're part of God's covenant people, there's that constant need for cleansing. Now there are variations as you go through this chapter, different requirements, and they're graded according to the position that you would occupy in Israel. The priest is spoken about from verse 2 to verse 12. The whole congregation, if they sin, a little bit different uh, requirement, verses 13 through 31. If you're a ruler of the people, instead of bringing a bull, you bring a female goat. An ordinary person, verses 27 through 35. Now basically, you bring the animal to the door of the tabernacle. You lay your hands on it. You confess your sins over the animal. The animal is killed at the north side of the altar. His blood is poured out at the base of the altar. Part of it is sprinkled before the veil, and some of it is put upon the horns of the altar. The fat that is on the entrails, that is on the kidneys, that is on the breast, is taken outside to that outer courtyard where that huge brass altar was, the altar of sacrifice, and the fat is burned upon that, as we see here in this chapter. The rest is then taken outside the camp and burned. Now what they would do is they'd cut off a section of this offering, a portion of it, and they'd give it to the priest because the priest's full-time ministry 
was being that go-between for the people and God, representing the people before God. They couldn't have the same fields. They couldn't have the same kind of occupations and jobs that everybody else could have. So they lived off a portion of the sacrifices. The meal offering was part of it was given to them to eat within the court of the tabernacle. And also part of the sin offering was kept for the priest to eat in the courtyard. Now the symbolism was obvious in this offering. An animal dies in place of a human for sin. An animal which did not sin like you and I sin, it's an innocent victim, dies in the place, in the stead of a guilty party. That was the whole purpose of it. But notice the phrase, sins unintentionally. That's interesting. Literally in Hebrew, it's sins through error or inadvertently. He didn't mean to do it, but there's still the need to deal with it. We live in an interesting um, time. Our culture has basically declared war on guilt. Guilt is wrong. Guilt is public enemy number one. It lowers self-esteem. It ruins self-worth. So let's get rid of guilt at all costs. What is amazing to me is the same society that encourages sin will not deal with the guilt that that sin produces. How many people we speak to in counseling who say, you know, I've tried to do this and I've tried to, but I still feel guilty. Why? Because you are guilty, that's why. All of the therapy won't deal with the guilt complex. The best way to deal with the guilt complex is to not say, I'm good enough, I'm nice enough, but to say, God, I'm sorry for my sins. That's where you deal with, deal with the guilt complex, at the foot of the cross. But what's the first advice the therapist gives to people who feel guilt? Now, it's not your fault, maybe. Maybe that's true, but maybe it's not true. And maybe, and there are times when people feel guilty for no good reason. There are some people that are just overly sensitive. They feel guilty about absolutely everything. But then there are other people who don't feel guilty enough. The offering was to take care of the guilt that it raised. Everybody today seems to be the adult child of some problem. Alcoholic, drug addict, mom and dad with a sweet tooth, disciplinarian, obsessive compulsive. There's always a name, a brand. The best way to escape the wrongdoing and the responsibility of wrongdoing and sin is to raise the person up to victim status. It's not your fault. You are a victim. And as long as we can label you as a victim, we've now raised the status and we're pushing down the guilt. The people that I talk to, the guilt still seems to linger. Let me give you a case in point. There's a guy by the name of Bernard McCummings. In a New York subway, not too long ago, he mugged and he beat an elderly man. As he was fleeing the scene, somebody with a gun shot him. McCummings was paralyzed. And McCummings 
The man who mugged and beat the elderly gentleman sued the New York Transit Company for, and won for $4.8 million. Because he was paralyzed. After all, I'm a victim. It's their fault. The man who was beaten and mugged is a cancer victim and is still paying the bills for his beating. Bernard McCummings is a multimillionaire because they bought into his being a victim. Our society does everything to say, it's not your fault, you're a victim, so sue everybody around you because it's their fault, it's not your fault. God had his way of dealing with the guilt. You're a sinner, whether you meant to do it or you didn't mean to do it, you've missed the mark. You need an offering for that. So you could rest assured, the animal, look, look at that animal, he's bleeding to death. My sin did that, but at the same time, there's a satisfaction that's produced. It's dealt with. And it all looked forward to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Now, most of you know that the idea of sin means both in Greek and in Hebrew the idea of to miss a mark. To miss a mark. You might aim for the mark. You might have every intention of getting that mark. You may not want to miss the mark, but you still might miss it. I remember as a boy learning how to play golf. My brother is a PGA pro. He learned well. I didn't learn all that well. I took lessons. My father showed me. We went out to the course every day. And though I tried to hit it straight down the fairway, I had every intention. There was the time when I knocked it out on the road. Hit a car. <laughs> Broke a window. I didn't mean to. It's not my fault. Somebody spoke while I was doing the backswing. The ground was a little bit uneven. I'm going to sue the golf course. It's their fault. I had every intention of making the mark, but I still missed the mark. I was still guilty. It was at my hands that it was committed. And so it had to be dealt with. Now, there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are overt, intentional wrongdoing. Sins of omission are, I didn't mean to, or I failed to do something when I should have done something. Either way, it's still sin. You listen, the best way to deal with sin is to first call it sin. Instead of a hang-up, a problem, an issue. How about just, that's sin. And I confess that. And I ask God to forgive me, and I ask you to forgive me if I've wronged you. Deal with it that way. Dwight L. Moody was speaking, guest speaking at a church years ago when he was the evangelist in Chicago. And he was speaking at a church. They said, now, the pastor said, my congregation is sort of infamous for moving around during a service. They'll get up, and some people will, will walk and walk out even. But he said, okay, I understand. So he got up to address the people. He said, this morning, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to address two classes of people. First, I'm going to speak to sinners. Then I'm going to speak to saints. So he gave part of his message to unbelievers. He said, now, I've just finished speaking to all the sinners. If you want to, you can get up and leave. Now I'm going to speak to the saints. And they said, for the first time in that congregation, no one moved. They all stayed seated. They didn't want to admit it. Now, for a minute, think how difficult it was to bring a sin offering. 
If you brought a sin offering, everybody in the camp, they're camped around the tent, would see you coming. It was an admission of guilt. You can't hide an animal. You can't stuff it under your shirt. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Just going to pray a little bit. You are admitting to wrongdoing. It is obvious. You're making a public statement of wrongdoing. And you would confess your sins as you would lay your hands upon that animal. There's a Latin proverb that says, He does not get cleansed of sins who denies them. It's an admission. Look down in verse 20, the benefits of this sacrifice. Atonement. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus, he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. It worked. Atonement was made. How? Guilt was transferred. It was all symbolic and identification. The laying out of hands was an identification. Not that you're identifying with the animal, but in a sense, the animal is identified. It's like a transferal. It's all symbolic, but God accepted the death of an animal for the sins of a person. It was all accepted. It worked. Atonement would be made. The word atonement means at one. It actually means, if you broke up the word, at one meant. It means to make one, two parties that are breached. There's a gulf. Atonement brings those parties together. Now, in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, turtle doves, never took away sins. The book of Hebrews tells us they covered them. It's different from taking it away. If I have something, and we're out here in the desert, and I drop something on the ground, if I push dirt over it so that you can't see it, it's covered, but it's still present. All of those animals never removed, but they satisfied God in this covenant by covering them. The Hebrew word kafar, kafar, to cover over, to make atonement for. Now the symbolism is, again, very plain. Jesus Christ is our sin offering. Even as the sin offering was taken outside the camp, Jesus Christ was crucified outside the camp of Jerusalem, outside the city wall. In fact, would you turn to Hebrews for just a moment, chapter 13. There's a reference to this. The symbolism is already made for us. We don't have to make it up. Verse 10 of Hebrews 13, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is to come. Jesus is our sin offering. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus took that fourth cup at the Last Supper, the cup of redemption, held it up, and tied in the symbolism. This is the cup of the new covenant, Matthew chapter 26 tells us. The covenant of my blood which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Died outside the camp. 
Now, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I want to fully apply this so you see how the symbolism is fulfilled in Christ for today. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and I'm glad he put that in there, because we do sin. We don't live a habitual lifestyle of sin, but we fall, we fail. Though we're consecrated to God, though we serve God, we still have the sin problems. We have an advocate, or you could translate that a defense attorney. You got a great lawyer. Jesus has never lost a case. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, an important word, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That little term, that big term, propitiation, comes from a Greek word. It's tough to translate. Translated in all sorts of different ways, and I've never really been satisfied with it. The Greek word is hilasterion, which translates literally mercy seat. Now go back to the tabernacle. In the veil, beyond the veil in the Holy of Holies, was that Ark of the Covenant, that box. If you've never read the Old Testament at all before, then your only frame of reference, I can tell you, is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that box in Raiders of the Lost Ark? That was the depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. So now you have a frame of reference from Hollywood. That was in the Holy of Holies. The top of that box had a solid gold lid called the Mercy Seat. In the box, there was a copy of the law that was broken. They never kept the commandments of God. It was a broken set of commandments. I mean spiritually it was broken. They didn't obey them. As long as the law was around, it reminded them that they failed. But it was covered by this mercy seat. In Greek, hilasterion. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle blood on top of that mercy seat. Atonement was made. God would meet with His people. And God said, I will only meet with you between the cherubim over the mercy seat as the blood is applied. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is the only place where God will meet with man. He will not meet with anybody on any other terms. You might make up your own God. You might have your own set of rules, your own religion, your own convictions. God will not meet with you outside of Christ. He's the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but also for the whole world. It's not just for us, not just for the Jewish people. Anybody can come and partake of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. So the act of Jesus' death now makes it possible for you and I to meet with God, to have fellowship with God, to get our sins taken care of. He's now faithful and just to forgive us our sins whenever you confess them. Whenever you confess them. It is enough, that one-time sacrifice. Now, I grew up as an altar boy. Some of you know what that is. As an altar boy, can you picture me as an altar boy, first of all? But as an altar boy, there were times where I went to the church and we had daily Mass. I had to get up at about 5.30, get ready, Mass is at 7 o'clock, early in the morning. Being inquisitive, I asked, 
why do we have this ceremony every day? And they said, actually, it's because of the amount of us around the globe. It's going on all of the time because the Mass is the continual sacrifice that is being made for sin. I thought, well, that sounds good to me. That's great. It's a great system. People all around the globe doing it. So effectively, it's going on all the time. Sins are constantly atoned for. Boy, was I relieved when I read the New Testament. And I find out that there's one sacrifice once for all. It's over with. We don't have to keep making sacrifices. Jesus' death on the cross was enough for all of eternity. And now there's one God and one mediator between God and man. It's not a priest. It's not a high priest. It's not somebody in a tabernacle in the Sinai Desert like we have here. It's Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who is not only the priest but the sacrifice offered for our sins once for all. So what do we do now? I've fallen. I failed. Well, John says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, let's look at chapter 5. Chapter 4 has been adequately dealt with. Now, verses 1 through 13 is part of the sin offering, I believe. At, at the beginning of your chapter, some of your Bibles might say trespass offering. I don't think the trespass offering is even spoken about till verse 14. The first 13 verses deal specifically with the application of the sin offering. First of all, one who fails to give testimony after being sworn by oath and fails to do that interferes with justice. It's a sin offering that's needed. One who contracts an impurity by touching something unclean, like a dead body. Not that you'd ever want to, but you might. And so a sin offering was given. One who fails to fulfill his vow, his promise. You know, some Christians worry that if they let others see their faults, that the others will doubt the gospel. And so we put on masks, because we have to act holy all the time. We can't just admit that we've blown it. So we put on this Christian, hi, everything's great, hallelujah. And I think that's wrong. I think one of the attractions to the gospel is the admission of wrongdoing and the forgiveness of sins. You know what that does to a kid, for instance, when his father said, Daddy was wrong. Well, that's a great lesson for a kid to learn. Not, you were wrong, kid. You didn't do what I say, but you know, in this case, Daddy sinned. Daddy was wrong. Would you forgive Daddy? I, Daddy's going to ask God to forgive him. I think that does more for the gospel, actually. It teaches children and others that we can be forgiven. And that humility is the way to God, not pride. If a person sins, verse 1, in the hearing, the utterance of an oath, and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. So if a person knows of a crime, he's under oath, and he withholds information, that person is guilty. He's lied. An offering to take away his guilt must then be offered. You know, Jesus testified under oath. He was Jewish. He didn't come to break the law, but to fulfill it, and he kept the law. When he stood before the high priest, the high priest put him under a Jewish oath, as mentioned here. He said, I adjure you by the living God. Now that's as solemn as you can get in Judaism. I adjure you by the living God. I'm placing you under God's oath. Tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? 
Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. Blasphemy! Under oath, Jesus told the truth. Yes, I am, even as you say, the Son of God, the Messiah. Placed under the oath. It's interesting and sad. In our country, lying is a big problem. I read lots of books, statistics, polls, and so forth, and one poll that I read in the chapter of the book, The Day America Told the Truth, suggests that one out of five Americans have an authentic problem with veracity, with truth, telling the truth. One out of five find it really hard to tell the truth. And they gave statistics looking over the landscape of America, who has the most problems. Now this probably won't surprise some of you, especially women. It says men lie more than women. Young men lie more than older men. I could draw interesting conclusions with each of these, but I will refrain. Unemployed people lie more than those with jobs. The poor lie more than the rich. Liberals lie more than conservatives. It goes on to say, Americans lie mostly to first parents, second friends, third siblings, least of all to doctors, obviously. You want to get better. Accountants, clergymen, last of all, we lie least to lawyers because they want to represent us, right? Yet, about 40% in the poll said they felt like they'd been lied to by lawyers, but they would never dare lie to one. The chapter goes on to say what a tangled web we weave. Americans are found over and over again to lie in so many different situations. Well, in this case, if you're sworn by oath and you withhold information, you're guilty. Your guilt must then be born. Or verse 2, if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it's the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, again, not that you'd want to do that, and it is hidden from him, he shall be unclean and guilty. If he touches human uncleanness, whatever sort of uncleanness, it is with which a man may be defiled, and it is hidden from him when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Hey, I didn't know I did that. Yeah, but you did it. I saw you. You touched that dead person. And sometimes you wouldn't be able to stop it. Maybe a friend of yours was dying in battle, and you were holding him. And he died. Well, you're defiled. You have to be outside the camp. You have to go through ritual washing. You have to bring the sacrifice. Sometimes it wouldn't be that you'd want to do this. Or, verse 4, if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and it is hidden from him when he realizes it, he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters... He shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. Now, there's three types of offering giving depending on how much money you have or how well-to-do you are. There's different stages depending on your situation in life, your ability to pay. Uh, in verse 6, a female lamb is prescribed. He shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Or, if he can't afford that, bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Verse 7. If 
he's not able to bring a lamb. He shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons, as one, one is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. Then in the following verses, you prepare it a certain way for the sacrifice. Down in verse 11, if you can't afford any of those, you bring a tenth of an ephah of flour. If he's not able to bring, verse 11, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, he who sins shall bring for an offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil in it, nor shall he put any frankincense in it, for it's a sin offering. In other words, you don't make it like the grain offering. It's very different. Where in the grain offering, you'd put oil in it, you'd mix it, you'd put frankincense in it, and the priest would eat a portion of it. So the idea here is this. This sacrifice for sin was in the reach, within the reach, of even the poorest of people. Some couldn't afford a lamb. How do I, I don't have a lamb. Or all I have is one lamb. How am I going to eat? So that even the poorest person could be forgiven of sin. Guilt could be dealt with. You'd bring a certain sacrifice, whichever you could afford. Now, you're going to notice, as we go on in this chapter, a trespass offering. In fact, as I said, some of you have trespass offering over verses 1 through 13. I've called it the sin offering and the trespass offering beginning in verse 14. They're very, very related, however. They go hand in hand. The first deals with guilt. The sin offering deals with your guilt. The trespass offering deals with restitution for the wrongs that you have committed. You see, one de deals with expiation, the taking away of guilt. The other deals with satisfaction for the wronged party. Keep that in mind and you'll understand the difference as we go along. Now, all of this was done to approach God. Here I am, that Midianite out in the desert. I have this problem. I want to approach God. I feel in my heart I want to get right with God. What do I do? Go get a lamb, buddy, or go get a goat, or go get a bull, depending on what you've done and who you are, to approach God. But the good news, whatever you have to bring, and however you do it, prescribed by law, God will forgive you. Atonement shall be made, done by substitution. Once again, the best way to deal with sin, admit it, you notice that when we lead people to Christ, we lead them in prayer, the first thing they say is, Lord, I have sinned. I am a sinner. We need to admit that. That's the first stage of repentance. Repentance, which means to turn from sin, change your mind and turn to God. How can you, if you don't admit there's a sin, what are you going to turn from? Now, some people say, no, Lord, if I've sinned, I pray you'll forgive me. If, if you're not sure, why bother praying about it? How about since? Oh, but so many people are reluctant. Well, Lord, you know, I'm not perfect. And if... Mm -mm. I heard of a dream that a fellow had one evening. He dreamt that he was at the gates of heaven. And who meets everybody at the gates of heaven? Peter, right. Peter was there. Peter took him back. Showing him around the place, kind of scoping it out, asking him questions about this room and that room. And he was just having a great time. And, and he noticed on the wall, clocks. And under the clock, there was a nameplate. People's names. Some he recognized. He said, Peter, what are all these clocks? He said, well, every time a person on earth sins, one revolution of the clock is made. It keeps track 
of the wrongdoings of people on the earth. So he was looking far and wide for his, and he couldn't find it. He says, Peter, I can't find my clock. Where is it? He goes, oh, your clock. It's in the basement. We're using it for a fan. <laughs> now, that's a joke you can use for somebody else. If you want to use that in the future, I didn't make it up. You have our permission. I've discovered, the longer I walk with the Lord, sins in places I didn't know were there at first. See, when I first came to Jesus Christ, I repented of what I called the biggies, the, the obvious ones. I had a pocket full of drugs, marijuana, LSD. And you know, it's like, you know, I'm kind of convicted that this is wrong. Wow. That, that, that's growth. Not much, but that's growth. That's good. And so I flushed him down the toilet. You know, I'm, I'm sort of convicted now that I shouldn't cuss anymore. Well, good, you're, you're making progress. But at that point in my life, an evil thought, hey, compared to the, those other big, those big Satanism or astral projection, or this is nothing. The longer you walk with the Lord, He reveals the heart, the motivations. After 30 years of walking with Christ, the great apostle Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, Paul, if Paul said that, sort of like David Frost interviewing Billy Graham, if you said that, what about me? Well, what about you? We need to be forgiven as well. And I know that probably if that were the case in that analogy, that my clock would be used for a fan in many times in my life. But thank God for Jesus Christ, my sin offering, and my trespass offering. Let's look over now at chapter 5, verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if a person commits a trespass, different word is used, and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as a trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation and shekels of silver according to the sexual... Uh, the shekel, excuse me, of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. Now, we've all seen signs, no trespassing, right? And as soon as you see that sign, if, especially if you have a four-wheel drive, what do you think? Hmm. How tight is that gate? What's on the other side of that knoll? Why is there that no trespassing sign? I want to see. I won't, I won't hurt it. I want to see it. I've got freedom. How dare they curtail my freedom? I'm going to call the ACLU. They'll make sure that I'm able to do whatever I want whenever I want it and not feel guilty about it. I can do whatever I want. I've got freedom. I'm going to do it. You have freedom, but your freedom has limitations. In any system, in any culture, you have the freedom to swing your fist in any direction, but your freedom stops at my nose. You don't have the freedom to just go hitting people whenever you want to. There are laws against that. Unfortunately, we don't uphold many of them in this country, but there are nonetheless laws. A trespass, though it can be done in unintentionally, often it is done intentionally. There's the line. Don't cross it. Okay, I'll just barely touch it. My son will often see how far he can go and still be within the parameters. And you, you always know a, a kid's in trouble when he thinks that way, right? 
Well, can I? Now, you do that sometimes. Have you ever thought, can I do that and still be a Christian? Can I still be right with God? That's dangerous to even think that way. Our thoughts, instead of being negative, should be, how can I please God this day with my body and my mind and my spirit, which belong to Him? I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. But if you have a trespass, there's a trespass offering. And this deals with, as we said, not guilt like the sin offering, but restitution. And that needs to happen. When you wrong somebody, you need to make restitution. And it's very specific on how to do it in the next couple chapters, how to make restitution. You pay back plus you add 20%. Very good law. Interest. Let's say I'm pulling out of the parking lot. I don't see you behind me. You're walking out there with your friends and I kind of put my foot on the pedal in reverse and kind of pull back a little too fast and I pin you in between my fender and your door, crushing your new car door in. You're on the ground. And I roll down my window and say, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Oh, God, please forgive me. Make everything right. Oh, praise the Lord for His grace. And I just drive on. <laughs> now, would you think, something's a little crazy. That's something, it just doesn't, that's not right. Oh, you bet you would. Forgiveness and consequence are two different issues. Forgiveness and restitution are two different things. Even Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and know that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there, you go get right with him, then come and offer your gift. This law of restitution. The person commits a trespass, sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, you're supposed to give to the priest certain portions of your offering. If you fail to do that because you're selfish, you're sinning against the holy things of God. If you fail in the Old Testament to pay tithes and offerings, God in Malachi chapter 3 says, You rob me by failing to pay those tithes and the offerings. If you fail to give your firstborn son or dedicate the first of your crops, those are all holy things dedicated to God. You shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation and shekels of the silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing. He shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be. Now, probably, that is the scripture short little Zacchaeus had in his mind when he was eating lunch with Jesus. Remember Zacchaeus, a little guy up in the tree? He had to climb the sycamore tree in Jericho because he couldn't see Jesus. He was a short guy. So he climbs the tree to see the parade. Jesus stops at the tree and goes, Zach? Come on down, man. We're going to go to your house, and you're going to feed me lunch. I like Jesus. Just very open about those things. Goes over to Zacchaeus' house, has lunch. Has a meeting with Zacchaeus. Obviously a life-changing meeting, because Zacchaeus, at the end of it, said, Lord, half of what I own now I give to the poor, and if I have harmed anyone in anything, I will restore fourfold. I'm going to just give. I, I, I'm determined now to give fourfold. I'm going to go way above and beyond. I've been touched by this meeting, touched by your grace. I want to make restitution. 
If a person sins and commits any of the things which are forbidden to be done by the commandment of the Lord, though he does not know it, he is guilty. He shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he erred and did not know it. He shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Now, I'm going to sum up the next two chapters very quickly because chapter 6 and 7 are recap instructions for the priests is what they are. Because Leviticus, part of it is an instruction manual for the Levites. These are the guys who will be the go-betweens between the people and God. And so there's a recap of all of the sacrifices with specific instructions. Except the first seven verses are part of chapter 5 and deal with the trespass offering. Have you noticed so far that part of chapter uh, 4 is in chapter 5 and chapter 5 with the trespass offering is in chapter 6? And you wonder why is there a chapter break? I don't know. Unfortunately, chapter breaks were put in years later by well-meaning people who sometimes didn't get the context or read it carefully enough. They just put a period and they gave it a new chapter. So we're a victim of that. But the first seven verses belong to the trespass offering. And uh, let's look at the first seven verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord, listen, listen by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it, swears falsely in any of the things that a man may do in which he sins. It shall be because he has sinned and is guilty. He shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has deceitfully obtained or what was delivered for safekeeping or the lost thing which was found. You borrow something from someone and lose it, you've got to restore it, plus 20%. Now can you understand why the student of Elijah at the Jordan River when he was cutting down trees and he lost the axe head in the Jordan River and he turns to Elijah and says, Alas, master, it was borrowed. Elijah said, No problem. Give me a stick. Throws it in. Axe head floats. Iron floats. Grabbed it. Gave it to the guy. So the poor seminarian didn't have to pay 20%. Or if he lies is sworn falsely, uh, in verse 6, he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish, from the flock with your valuation, a trespass offering to the Lord. The priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done, in which he trespasses. Now back in verse 2, it talks about, about robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor. And the idea is a violent robbery. You remember King Ahab? Married to the creep Jezebel. Both of them were like creepus maximus. They were meant for each other. Ahab was like a little pouting boy. And one day he saw Naboth, who had a beautiful vineyard close to the king's house. So he went over to Naboth. He said, I'd like to buy that from you. Or I'll give you another vineyard. But I want that for a vegetable garden because it's so close to my house. Naboth said, can't have it. This has belonged to my dad and my dad's dad. And I can't give away family property or sell it. God forbid. You know that the land is God's. It can't be sold that way. So he goes home and he actually pouts. He refused to eat supper. He just shoved his food away and just pouted. And his wife Jezebel came home. 
I said, what are you so pouty about? Oh, I wanted the vineyard for Benjamin. He wouldn't give it to me. And, and, and she, being a little more aggressive and had more guts, said, hey, you're the king in Israel. You can do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. I'll get you that vegetable garden. So she hires a couple scoundrels and says, go call a feast. Invite Naboth. And in his honor, as he's at the head of the table drinking and so forth, that it's in his honor, have a couple of these scoundrels. You guys accuse him of blasphemy. And before he can say yes or no, take him out and stone him to death. They did it. Sinned against God. Went to her husband and said, I got you the vineyard. It's yours now. He's dead. You can have it. Well, he didn't bank on the prophet Elijah coming, knowing the scripture, knowing the idea of restoration and sin against God, and really pronounced a curse on him in the name of the Lord. He said, because you have done this, the dogs that licked the blood of Naboth in this place will lick your blood. Heavy duty. It happened. They were having a fight later on. King Ahab was killed in his chariot as they brought it down to the stream and were washing out the chariot. The pool of blood was there. The dogs came and licked the blood of Ahab from his chariot, the same place, the same city that Naboth had been deceived and extorted. So the law was broken. Verses 8 through 13 is the law of the burnt offering. 14 through 23, the law of the meal offering. These are instructions for priests. Chapter 7, much of the same. The trespass offering, which we just read, and the peace offering. I do want to draw your attention, though, to verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, you shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat, and the fat of the beast that dies naturally, the fat of what is torn by wild animals, may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the beast, which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats of it shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because the fat was considered the best portion of it, not for food, but it was burned and it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. So you offer the best by fire to the Lord. You don't eat any of the fat. To this day, Jewish homes if they're orthodox, will not have any soap made with animal fats. Lest if they wash their dishes, the dishes become unkosher. They don't want to sin against God because of the fat content. Now we also know that there's health problems in eating fat. God said, I forbid you to eat the fat. I think he was also watching out for their health. You know, it's interesting. We've got these new studies and new reports about how eating fat does this, and we can change that by eating this. The only problem with that is that 3,500 years too late, God already prescribed that. Healthy diet for them. Burn it. Offer it to the Lord. Don't eat the fat. And then he says, don't eat the blood. Verse 26 and 27, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. You'd say, who would eat blood? I was reading a Newsweek article. Oh, it's time to close. Can't read it to you. Okay, I'll read it to you. Since you put it that way. Quote, there are 50 or so vampire interest groups in the United States. This is from the last Newsweek I have on my desk. Read it today. Which give fancy dress balls and organize dungeons and dragon-like role-playing games. But Stephen Kaplan, head of New York's Vampire Research Center. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Yes, I'm the head of the vampire. How could you have a straight face as you introduce yourself? 
brush my teeth today, <laughs> claims that some 750 of our fellow citizens are really vampires, not literally undead corpses who turn to ash if sunlight hits them. Now, that would be crazy, but people who get antsy if they don't drink blood. This is in Newsweek. Vlad Lysinia, 26, a Chicago-area rock singer, won't call himself a vampire, but he's into ritual blood-sucking, and he's been doing it for years, despite potential health hazards. Quote, I'm monogamous, he says. I only drink from my wife. Now you think, you read this law and say, who'd ever do that or drink blood? Well, there's at least 750 people, Newsweek says, that are out there doing it. God says, whoever does will be cut off, cut off from my people. And then I'll sum it up for you. Verses 28 to the end of the chapter talk about the portion of the priest, how it's to be eaten. And I have more comment on that, but we just ran out of time. Um, but we've dealt with sin. It's not a popular concept. People explain it away. Our modern society has a totally mechanistic view. You are a victim of your environment and your circumstances. Those kind of voices are all around you, are they not? Eastern mystics, Eastern religions say that if you fail in this life, well, better luck in the next. Christian science says evil and sin doesn't exist. You really don't exist. Sickness doesn't exist. All sorts of philosophies. One pastor even said, quote, I don't think anything has ever been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. The same man said, quote, Jesus knew his worth and his success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. Whoever says he has no sin, John said, is a liar. The truth isn't in him. Whoever confesses his sins, God's faithful and just to forgive, to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So there I am, that Midianite, out in the desert. And if you could counsel me, you could say, yeah, you've got to get that lamb now. But one day, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, will take care of everyone's sins, whoever will come. Have you come to Him? Has He taken away your sin? If you have not confessed that you're a sinner, asked Him to forgive you, asked Him to come in and reign in your life, you are not a Christian. You are not right with God. You are still under the penalty of your sins, and you must ask Him, or face, instead of a Savior, a judge. The good news is it's free. He is the Lamb. 